Hello and welcome into a special edition of the College Football News Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shevkowski, riding solo on this one, but for good reason here, as about to be joined by someone that knows a ton about one of the most interesting teams traditionally in college football. As we await week four, week four excitement, obviously, if you want, you can go back and check out our latest podcast with Pete Futek and myself. As we preview week four, Notre Dame and Georgia's previews in there, Texas A&M and Auburn preview in there, uh, previews for other bigger games going on in the country as well. One of those being Michigan traveling to Madison, Wisconsin to take on the Badgers and Michigan being a team that two weeks into this year has not shown themselves to be quite the caliber that many thought they'd be entering the 2019 year. So a lot to get to with that but a lot to get to with college football as well in kind of where Michigan is at, a crossroads of sorts for them and crossroads of sorts for the sport of college football and the role that NCAA plays in all of it. Like I said, college football appears to be at a crossroads of sorts there. It's not that it hasn't been going on forever, but we've all heard the stories by now, right? Like Eric Dickerson is one of those getting a car as payment and then toggling between if he's going to go to A&M or SMU or A&M or SMU and eventually takes the car and then he goes to SMU with the car that Texas A&M or whichever the story goes supposedly gave him. Uh, Rashawn Gary was quoted in the recent book Overtime by John U. Bacon as being offered over $300,000 to play college football at a certain school. Didn't give details of which school it was, but said it was more than $300,000 and chose against the money instead attended Michigan, school that most believe to do things the, quote, right way. But how many teams do that the right way? Clemson, I, I, I think you would say Clemson, oh, they don't have any academic scandals. They're not paying players to go there. Dabo seems like a great guy. Remember, Clemson was a team that a season ago, right before the college football playoff started when they were down in Dallas, Dexter Lawrence got suspended for steroid use. And Dabo Sweeney was asked about it and said, oh, I'm going to go out and test all my players. going to go out and do this. going to make sure that this isn't ramp, running rampant around Clemson's campus and around the football program. But then those tests, we never got confirmation that anything was done with it. So what can be done, and does anyone care if anything's done? For some reason, whether it's the NFL, college football, when you hear like steroid use or performance-enhancing drugs, it doesn't bring the same reaction that it does when it's like Major League Baseball. For whatever reason, if it's just the expectation, oh, guys are probably on roids, and you're okay with it. I don't know why that is, but that seems to be more of an okay thing. So I was able to talk to John U. Bacon. He's the author of the new book, like I said, Overtime. Takes a look at the 2018 Michigan football season, but it's also a deeper look at the multi-billion dollar business that college football has become. We discuss a ton of the things that I just kind of talked about. The paying of players, the under-the-table under paying of players, what can be done with that. And then we get into a little bit of Michigan as well. Unimpressive their first two weeks of the year this year. They beat Middle Tennessee State. They get by Army in double overtime. They're 2-0 as they hit the road for the first time this year to take on the Wisconsin Badgers, a Wisconsin team that's looked fantastic. We'll get his preview about them as well as Michigan takes on Wisconsin this week. John U. Bacon 
the author of the new book, Overtime, which is available for college football fans, for Michigan fans, for Big Ten fans. It's available in bookstores anywhere, Amazon, all the whole enchilada. You can get it at any of those places. Very much recommend this book for you. After this quick break, we'll welcome in none other than John U. Bacon and discuss all of that and so much more in regards to Michigan football and the College Football News Podcast with Nick Shepkowski. Do you like to have a little action on the games you're watching? Would you rather donate to a great cause, though, than to your bookie? If so, go check out scoresplit.com. At Scoresplit, you can join a square, pool, or strip card for whatever game you're watching, all while benefiting your favorite local or national nonprofit group. Here's how it works. You pick a square, and if the score matches up, you split the pot with the thankful organization. Easy as that. Here's the best part. Sign up at ScoreSplit using promo code CFN, and they'll set you up with $10 to get the fun started. Visit ScoreSplit.com or download the ScoreSplit app from the App Store or Google Play today. ScoreSplit can't win. Kind enough to be joined by the author of Overtime. It's a book for not just if you're a Michigan fan or a Big Ten fan, but the crossroads of college football. John U. Bacon, New York Times bestselling author, kind enough to join us this evening on the College Football News Podcast. John, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Nick, my pleasure. It's There's a ton of stuff with Michigan to get to, the Jim Harbaugh era to get to that's well-documented in this book, but I find myself almost more interested even it feels like we're at a crossroads of college football, and you cited a little bit in this book, in overtime, that's available at bookstores anywhere. But Clemson wins the national title last year, and people immediately forget, oh, a couple of their star players failed a drug test just days before the Cotton Bowl. Oh, hey, well, you see the Rashawn Gary story in this book, where he was offered $300,000 or more to go play for another university, and people just turn their head and, oh, that's college sports. How big is this epidemic? How new is it? It doesn't feel new to me. And what can really be done? Well, great question. And, of course, in the book we talk about the cheating in terms of recruiting, which is rampant, as you know. And, you know, Nick, in our business, you don't have to go looking for these stories. They find you anyway. So it's uh, largely common knowledge, I would say. Uh, Then the steroid front, of course, is another area of cheating. And before the game, of course, the national title game against Alabama, uh, a few Clemson players tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, basically steroids. And Dabo Sweeney, of course, made a big show and said, uh, we're going to test everybody for everything on this team. And, of course, they probably tested nobody for anything and still hadn't. So we've got no idea how many guys on Clemson's team are juicing right now. And the fact that they don't want to test tells me they probably suspect that some are. So we can probably draw that conclusion fairly safely. <clears throat> it's out of control but cheating on almost all fronts. And hopefully this book helps some in terms of drawing some attention to it. But two problems are, one is the NCAA clearly does not care. They've got a good thing going. The worst nightmare is taking away a banner from a title team. That's what they don't want to do, a la Louisville in 2013, of course, with Rick Pitino's team. Uh, And that's one problem. Second problem is the national media, in my opinion. You excluded, Nick. We too often say that Oh, NCAA says no one cheats, and the national media says everyone cheats, and both are false. And they're kind of lazy because when you say everybody cheats, you don't have to investigate anybody and ask tough questions of uh, some of the big coaches out there because then they won't come back on your show. So that's a problem there too. So it's a big issue. I'm trying to put some light on it now, 
my guess is you can't solve this problem until you basically separate um, those who want to pursue the sport for money um, by having a viable minor leagues and basketball and football the same way we've had for baseball and uh, hockey for more than a century. So if you don't want to be a student and you want to get paid, go right ahead. As long as everyone's going to the same funnel, this is bound to happen. It's the interesting thing with college football. It's like, how big is the epidemic? How long has it been going on? I mean, you remember stories from Eric Dickerson getting given a a car from Texas A&M and driving it to SMU and ending up there. And I think people have seen the 30 for 30 on the Pony Excess and Pony Express. But it's it's so much deeper than that. It's been going on for seemingly forever. It's just, it it doesn't feel like there's a solution out there as the problem. Because I, I, I look at a couple of examples at the NCAA, Missouri. They self-report. They do everything kind of the way they're supposed to. Hey, this is what we did wrong. And they get a bowl game taken away from them. Notre Dame, the same thing a few years ago. On the other hand, it's UNC a few years back with basketball coming off a national title. It's deeper than any of the other universities. It's worse. You have students taking tests, cheating going on, classes not even being attended, let alone actual diplomas being earned. And the NCAA, eh, nothing to see here. It's Carolina basketball. Carry on like nothing's wrong. That's exactly right. The we cite that, of course, in the book, and good job reading the whole thing. So next reader should be alerted that this guy actually reads the book. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, UNC had bogus courses for 18 years going on. They finally uh, reported all that, and the NCAA finally did nothing. And their argument was, because these classes are available to all students, it is therefore not merely an athletic issue and therefore not under our uh, jurisdiction, which is so absurd. When Rick Pitino got caught with Louisville, uh, they hired prostitutes for their basketball players. By the NCAA's logic, the real fault there was not hiring prostitutes for the entire student body. If they'd done that, of course, by their logic, then it would be okay. So that's how silly and inept the NCAA is willfully being at this point. So there's no hope there. The NCAA, the problem there, of course, is that it's not just a sheriff anymore. It's also a saloon keeper. They're making billions off this. So if you're also the the saloon keeper as well as the sheriff, guess what, Nick? You're not going to find a lot of underage drinking in your bar tonight. So there's more money in bartending than there is in uh, being a sheriff. So that's what the NCAA is doing now. It's frustrating to see because it doesn't feel like there's a perfect solution out there. Actually enforce it. It's one thing to say it, but then in reality to see see them actually follow through with it is an entirely different story of it. I guess my next question is on this from your findings and from the players that you've you've worked relationships with and coaches both at the University of Michigan and elsewhere I'm sure as well. It's how deep does it go? Because we hear Michigan seemingly does it football wise historically the right way. Some other teams that are are in there they're always throwing around Northwestern here locally for sure. us. It's always the right way type of thing. Naval Academy, you hear that. Like, How many teams are doing it the right way? Is it really an epidemic or is it more of a thing that's like, okay, some SEC teams, maybe some teams in the Southwest as well that have historically been known for that and otherwise it's pretty clean? Or what, what's the grasp you kind of get on that field? Well, it's difficult to prove a negative. So it's hard to say exactly who's cheating, who's not. Um, on the grand scale, unless we really investigate. But the bets I would make would be Stanford, Northwestern, Notre Dame, uh, Michigan. Um, in the past, under Paterno and Bill O'Brien, I'd say Penn State. I've got no idea either way about, uh, about uh, James Franklin. Um, I've got no statement on Michigan State or Ohio State, no idea either way. 
have not investigated those schools. Um, but it's not a very long list. Uh, that's the catch. So um, on that front, and that's the problem also. The coaches know they don't report each other because it's, it's pointless. When Bo Schembechler did that in the late 80s, and this is in the book, he had recorded a high school coach in New Jersey asking for $5,000 each for two of his players. Bo recorded it. He asked Joe Paterno what to do, and Joe Paterno said, you can send the NCAA the tape, but they're not going to do anything. So Bo did it, and they didn't do anything. They didn't even call him back. So that's 30 years ago. They want no part of any of this. That's what they've proven again and again. So to really solve this problem, I think, Nick, you need something to replace the NCAA because they've got no stomach for it, or at least fundamentally change the way they do business because that's the first issue. They also say they've got no subpoena power. But, man, neither do, neither do journalists. And we can find this stuff out. So that's a, that's a dodge also. He's John U. Bacon. Overtime's the name of the book. It's an in-depth look at the 2018 Michigan Wolverines. But beyond that, an in-depth look to college football, the multi, the mil, multi-billion dollar business that it really has turned into and some of the shady dealings in and around it and how to try to clean it up and try to fix it because it's not like it's a new problem that college football has faced with it. So in the book, you get into it a little bit there with having to do it the right way or having to be creative in getting it the right way. I know you've developed a relationship with the Michigan coaching staff, some players. Jim Harbaugh from afar, at least for us, he seems intense. He seems kind of strange because of whether it's the khaki pants, always being on edge. Is there a story or a recruiting story with him that you've come across or come to know that kind of best encapsulates him? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, that he is very hard to get to know publicly. His press conferences are brief and not very revealing. Uh, his comments tend to be lightning rods, of course. People either love him or hate him. Um, that's pretty clear. Uh, I got a much better view of him by talking at length to uh, we're the same age. So I grew up playing baseball with him and hockey against him. We're not like best buddies or anything or drinking buddies, uh, but I know a lot of his friends. So I talked to his fourth-grade classmates, his seventh-grade teammates, his ninth-grade uh, football coach, his dad at great length many times, 10, 12 times, his brother John for three hours, Jim for three hours, and I uh, got a much fuller picture. What they noted about Jim early on was that he's – um, his cockiness was so great that even Bo noticed that when he was 10 years old. So Bo Schembechler, that is. Jack's theory is that because Jim was always hanging with John, uh, two years older, and John's friends, that if you want to hang with those friends, you better be probably cocky to, to handle the uh, give and take and all that. That's probably where it comes from. Uh, competitive is all get out. That's pretty obvious. We've got some great stories about that. But the surprising part, perhaps, is the caring aspect, that a few people from junior high school pointed out that Jim was not only not a bully, but he'd protect those who were getting bullied from the bullies, and he'd pick their fights for them, basically. So, and I talked to one of the guys who was victimized by bullies in the process. He had a hearing impairment and a list, and he said Jim was his biggest offender and knocked a guy out on his behalf. So what you get there is kind of the public versus the private gym. The public gym is the cockiness and the competitiveness, which people either love or hate, depends on where they stand. But the players get the caring side, and that's why they have been squarely in this corner throughout this process. He definitely has upped the level of play at Michigan, just like he did at Stanford, just like he did with the 49ers, and it turned them into winners. I mean, how many NFCs or went to the NFC Championship three games in a row, at least in San Francisco? Michigan hasn't reached that peak yet that they've been trying to get to 
if it doesn't happen this year, I guess, the way it kind of sets up with the hype, the expectations, the overhaul down in Columbus with the coaching change and the quarterback change, is there a better setup that you can foresee here in coming years than, than, than right now? Well, sure. I mean, he's basically one win away from getting what everyone wants at Michigan, and that, of course, is a win over the Buckeyes. He's 0-4 against the Buckeyes. Um, had some good battles, of course, double overtime in 2016. Had a 14-point lead in 2017. Um, and last year, of course, they were basically tied at halftime, and then the doors came off. So uh, some good fights in there, but you, until you win, you, you, no one can count it. Uh, if he beats Michigan, or sorry, beats Ohio State, uh, this year or the next year, uh, then all bets are off. Then people are undeniably happy in the Michigan fan base. It's worth noting that his AD, Ward Manuel, uh, he's got the only vote that matters, and the vote is 1-0 in his favor, in Harbaugh's favor. Ward is not budging. The stadium is full. The team is competitive. They are finishing the top five or six academically out of 130 programs every year that Harbaugh has been there. They beat Stanford all four years in a row. They have uh, both beaten and lost to Northwestern in that little battle, but that's the list you're on. So as far as Ward's concerned, he's not budging. And Michigan fans got to realize, too, the 20% or 10% who are grumbling, is without, without, without Harbaugh, who? You know, if not him, who else are you going to get? Uh, and, you know, Tony Dungy's not signing up for this and uh, all that. So uh, you'd be a fool, I think, to move on Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, I'm with you on that entirely. It's just because sometimes when you say something negative to a resume, it's, oh, you want him fired. No, you don't want him fired. You just wonder when the bar is going to be raised or when the actual, oh, sure. like, like that part comes into it. Uh, I look at it well, in the big. Trust me, Nick, even hardcore Michigan fans, like I said, 10, 20 percent are already in that category. So that's already being heard. If they lose again to Ohio State, that'll probably become 25, 30 percent. So you're not alone. I guess the the crazy, fun, and silly what-if game. Say Michigan loses this week to Wisconsin, or maybe they lose later on in the year when they host Notre Dame, but they do beat Ohio State. They do win the Big Ten East, and they ultimately win the Big Ten this year, but because of a loss earlier in the year, they don't go to the college football playoff. Is that seen as, as a success simply for getting by Ohio State finally? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to ask Michigan fans right now, if they went 1-11 this year and the one was against Ohio State, they'd probably be happy. Um, you got to realize Michigan has uh, lost to Ohio State 16 out of 18 years this, this century, by far the worst stretch ever in the history of Michigan football against any opponent. So uh, that one has gotten very old for Michigan fans. And furthermore, they've not won a Big Ten title since '04. That is now a 14-year streak, uh, the longest ever in the history of the University of Michigan including a stretch where they left the Big Ten for 10 years from 1907 to 1917. This is a worse stretch than that. So two things right there, beat, the, beat Ohio State, win a Big Ten title. If they don't get a bid in the, in the college football playoffs, Michigan fans will get mad at the pickers, but they won't get mad at the team. That's my guess. Looking at it from someone, you're there around the program at Michigan, but also in the state of Michigan. From us here in Illinois, a little tougher to kind of kind of figure out and get a grasp on. I know Michigan State had the embarrassing loss last week, where they have 12 men on the field and the the game tying field goals negated because of it, and they missed the extra chance. But Michigan State, for most of my childhood, was like, and Mike Hart called them little brother, and really they were for the longest amount of time. How is that kind of viewed? Is it is that rivalry anywhere near as tense as the Ohio State part? Because that had been for as long as I'd watched football. It's like Michigan is damn near the top of the mountain, and Michigan State is this rumor, 
in the last 10 years or so, eight years or so, that's really changed. How has it changed, I guess, in Michigan fans' eyes and supporters' eyes? It's changed quite a bit. And uh, under Bo Schimbeckler, Michigan was 17-4 and four in 21 years against the Spartans. So most of those losses are just big upsets that happen along the way. Uh, since then, of course, it's been a whole lot closer to even. And then Mark D'Antonio <clears throat> went 8-2 and two for 10 years against the Wolverines. Even Duffy Doherty and Biggie Munn, who won national titles at Michigan State, did not do as well against Michigan as Mark D'Antonio. So, therefore, that greatly increases the value of that rivalry. I think that rivalry is underrated. Everyone talks about Michigan-Ohio State. But Michigan-Michigan State is right up there, as you'll see in the book, of course. Uh, the Michigan players, the fans, and the um, they respect Northwestern. They respect uh, Wisconsin, respect Penn State. Notre Dame, both the fans and the, and the players are very respectful. At Ohio State, the players are very respectful. The, pan, the fans, less so. <laughs> but at Michigan State, the fans are very respectful. And the Michigan State players and the Michigan players truly, genuinely hate each other and far more than I ever imagined until I started interviewing these guys. So that game is now a red-letter game in a way it was not before and has been greatly elevated in Michigan fans' eyes, I would say. Yeah, it, it, at least competitively it has been too, but obviously when it becomes more competitive, that's when a lot of the a lot of the intensity is going to grow as well. I, I've always been a lifelong Notre Dame fan. My college roommate was a lifelong Michigan fan, so that led for four years of fun for us when we were living together oh, from uh, 2004 to 2007, where it was like each year the team that was supposed to lose or supposed to get blown out was the one that was indeed <laughs> the one that was pulling the upset instead. So let's for, for some fun there years there. Right. Um, finally, I want to ask you about this week, Michigan and Wisconsin. Shea Patterson says that the offense is going to come together and figure things out, and he's very confident. What should we expect with the Wolverines and Badgers this week? I mean, a month ago you could have gotten this number, Michigan being a seven-point favorite, and all of a sudden you look at it now and it's Wisconsin a favorite up in Madison. Which makes sense to me based on the first uh, two games both teams have played. Um, that's not too surprising. Uh, but I would say that Shea is probably right. He knows more than I do about this, but he's been injured since the first play of the first game with his oblique muscles, uh, is what I'm hearing. And then it takes two weeks to recover. He's had two weeks with a bye week, so he should be at 100%. They'll have John Runyon Jr., their uh, first-team All-Big Ten left tackle. He's back for the first game this year. A couple other players are probably back as well, which does not mean you become a different team overnight, but they probably should be a better team. And if Shea can also run as well as throw along, which he couldn't do against Army, uh, that changes the playbook as well. So I would say that uh, a lot of unknowns will be answered this weekend. Uh, the first two games didn't tell you much. Uh, what the problems were can be easily fixed, by and large, for Michigan. Meantime, of course, Wisconsin is smoking their opponents uh, more than 100 points to zero. So that's a classic corn-fed Wisconsin team. And, of course, Taylor, the tailback, might be the best in the nation. So this is going to be one hell of a battle in Madison. The one big advantage I would say for Michigan is the fact that, thanks to TV, that game is going to be kicked off at 11 o'clock in the morning, Madison time. You've probably been there. You know the fans up there. The student section is raucous, but not at 11 o'clock in the morning. So that is probably a big break for Michigan. Yeah, it usually is a later arriving crowd. And when I've been in uh, when I've been in Madison for games, it the crazier it gets is usually has something to do with the sun going down, and it coincides <laughs> very closely with that. Hey, John, this the was sun a lot going of going down and the beer going up. Exactly. You right. Yeah, you're the right place for that. It's one of the best college campuses and best 
just the football environments if that's what you're looking for. Overtime's the name of the book. John U. Bacon's his name. He's a New York Times bestselling author. You can get it wherever books are sold. It's not just about Michigan football. It's a great look at Michigan football, but about college football as a whole, the kind of crossroads that the sport is at right now. Check it out. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere books are sold. John, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate you taking the time. Nick, anytime, man. Keep me in touch. Hope you enjoyed that, a look at the inner workings of college football, not just a look at the Michigan Wolverines, but the business as a whole and the business, not the football side on a lot of that. Thank you again to John U. Bacon, Amazon.com, any bookstore where uh, anywhere books are sold, online or in a bookstore where you can find Overtime by John U. Bacon. Thank you again to him for joining us on the College Football News Podcast. As always, subscribe to it, rate it, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, any place you go to get your podcast. Be sure to tell a friend, and hopefully we'll continue to make this thing grow. Thanks a ton for listening to the College Football News Podcast. We'll be back again next week. As always, I'm Nick Shepkowski. Enjoy the games this Saturday.